Uh, Take your copy of God's Word and uh, open it or swipe in it to Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Mark 3, 22 through 30. Uh, Last week, we looked at the the bread or the bracketing of one of Mark's sandwiches in uh, his biography of Jesus' life. Those Markin sandwiches take one event in the life of Jesus and they bracket it with the beginning and the conclusion of another event in Jesus' life. And so last week we saw the brackets, this confrontation between Jesus and his family. And today we'll see what's in the middle, the meat of the sandwich or the peanut butter and jelly, again, depending on your taste in sandwiches, uh, which is another confrontation, not with Jesus' family, but with, again, the scribes uh, of the Pharisees. I wonder what you think the most dangerous thing you can imagine would be, or the most dangerous thing you could do. Uh, just this morning, I was uh, listening to a, a podcast on, while I was walking my dog, and uh, heard this story of a man named James Bush, who uh, on April 12th of 1999, uh, he as a member, uh, as an Air Force, uh, Air Force Academy cadet and a member of their parachute team, jumped out of a perfectly good working airplane to parachute down to the ground. On that fateful day, as James Bush pulled the cord for his main chute, uh, it deployed, but not all the way. It was tangled up in some of the the lines that anchor the chute to the pack, and he did some work while he was hurtling toward the ground to try to uh, unfurl the chute all the way found very quickly that was not going to happen, so he, he pulled another core that's supposed to let go of the main chute to uh, uh, detach the main chute so that he could then uh, throw out his reserve chute, because if you're going to jump out of an airplane, you should have two parachutes. So he pulls the main chute detachment cord and then pulls the cord for his reserve chute. Well, when he pulled the detachment cord, it didn't detach all the way, and when he pulled the reserve chute, it deployed into the still-attached, failed main chute. James Bush still hurtling toward the ground. He found very quickly he was not going to be able to resolve the situation, and so he literally prepared for the worst. He followed all of his training. They actually teach you how to hit the ground if your chute doesn't open, as though there's any hope in that at all. But he did his training. Crossed his arms over his chest, put his feet together, and when he hit the ground, they teach you to hit the ground and kind of roll so your whole body becomes kind of like a spring, and he did, and he hit the asphalt in the middle of a freeway in Colorado Springs, Colorado, sprung off the ground four or five feet, landed again. Traffic stopped. James laid there for a little while, trying to figure out, am I still alive? What's going on? Over a period of several minutes, be able to feel his fingers and toes again, and and move his extremities. Ambulance paramedics arrived, took him to the hospital, spent hours that day on his back getting CT scans, MRIs, all that stuff to make sure everything was okay. James was released from the hospital the same day. Jumping out of an airplane with a parachute is a really dangerous thing. And the dangers of jumping out of an airplane are in full display in James Bush's life and the lives of others who were perhaps not as fortunate or providentially blessed or watched over or cared for in those moments whose chutes did not open also and incurred serious injuries. But friends, the most dangerous thing in the world 
is not jumping out of an airplane with a poorly packed parachute. There is in Scripture a more dangerous thing you can do. And Jesus highlights what that is in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. The most dangerous thing a person can do is to oppose Jesus as an agent of evil. To oppose Jesus, him being an, assuming him to be an agent of evil, is of a sin of greatest perversion of his work and person, and even more so of the work and person of the Holy Spirit. This is more dangerous than jumping out of an airplane. The main idea of Mark 3, 22 through 30, a sermon that I have uh, titled today, The Unforgivable Sin, just after the brightest topic, I suppose, in this passage. The main idea is this, that opposing Jesus by calling him evil carries with it severe, eternal, and horrifying consequences. This morning, as we look at what Jesus calls the unforgivable sin, let us understand what the unforgivable sin is and what it isn't. We'll discover that. So that we might be appropriately warned encouraged and confident and responsive to Jesus when we see and hear him. I would invite you as you're comfortably able to please stand as we honor God by reading his word from Mark's gospel chapter 3 verses 22 through 30. In the verse preceding, we remember that Jesus' family hears that he's in a crowded house again. Lots of people are coming and they go out to get him because they think he's out of his mind. Verse 22, Mark continues, he says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. Opposing Jesus by calling him evil carries severe, eternal, horrifying consequences. This passage sort of breaks down into two parts, verses 22 through 27 and then verses 28 through 30. So let's look at the first chunk at uh, these Pharisees who start calling God's work evil. What can we learn about, uh, about what it means to call God's work evil? Well, we learn, first of all, that calling God's work evil is an act of desperate defiance. Preaching the gospel, healing the sick, exercising demons has been Jesus' full-time work for some time already by Mark chapter 3. We've already seen how this ministry brought on confrontation and conflict with the Pharisees in and around the region of Galilee. But here in verse 22... A new group of scribes and Pharisees is on the scene, not the ones from Galilee and Capernaum, but these have come all the way from Jerusalem, 60 miles to the south or so, to confront and discredit Jesus. Other Pharisees could not stop him with accusations of breaking their traditions or even of breaking the law. And when Jesus confronted them with the implications of their own legalism, they had no response to him. So now a more elite group of elites needs to come to confront Jesus. And in total defiance against the Son of God, this group of, of 
Pharisees, comes from Jerusalem with a radical new accusation. Not that Jesus is breaking their traditions, not that he's breaking their law, but they are saying Jesus isn't a good teacher with hard, controversial sayings. That's not it at all. He's actually the very enemy of God. These scribes start spreading the rumor that Jesus' power and authority to cast out demons comes from none other than Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's a weird name, Beelzebul. It's a name uh, of, a, of an ancient Canaanite god. We read about him, uh, or at least this god, a little bit in the book of 2 Kings. The name in Hebrew is Baal Zebub. It's a name that means something like Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Carrion, Lord of the Roadkill. It may also mean something like Lord of the Temple, Lord of the House. The name is kind of difficult. But by Jesus' day, as the scribes indicate, the name of this false god had come to be applied to none other than Satan himself. You've heard of people in church playing the God card. They say, well, God told me, and then they fill in the blank with some ridiculous and nonsensical thing that they're hoping to get uh, them to, to justify themselves in doing or to get the approval of others because they said, well, God said that I should go do this. And playing the God card is a desperate attempt to justify sinful behavior or selfish motives without having to provide any sort of objective biblical explanation for yourself. These scribes aren't playing the God card, but they're doing the very same thing, only far worse. They're not playing the God card, they're playing the Satan card. We really don't think this Jesus, we really don't like this Jesus guy. We can't really find any good scriptural reason not to believe him, so he must be Satan. That's got to be it. It's the only reason we don't like him. He's evil. Hey, listen up, everybody. You see this Jesus guy? All, all these demons he's been casting out of people and, and all the people he's been making well and, and restoring their lives, it's just the devil of all devils doing it through him. Don't listen to what he's saying. These Pharisees are so desperate to defy Jesus and the good work of God in and through him that they have stooped to the level of saying that freeing demon-possessed people is actually an act of evil which is what leads Jesus and us to see that calling the Word of God, the work of God, evil, is not only an act of desperate defiance, it is also logically incomprehensible. It makes no sense. I love a strong argument simply stated that beautifully reveals a bad or a senseless claim. I'm weird. I like listening to debates by wise logicians that stir my thinking and sharpen my mind. If you like listening to debates, you can be weird with me. The wisdom of God in Christ is so powerfully evident in verses 23 to 26 of this passage. When Jesus is called the worst thing that anyone could call him, Satan, he doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't respond in ruthless mocking. He doesn't try to own the scribes in front of all their friends. Instead, he tells a series of parables, these short metaphorical stories that illustrate and teach about spiritual realities. Specifically, he tells these parables to explain that their claim of his satanic power is logically incomprehensible. It's a self-defeating claim. He starts by asking a question. How can Satan cast out Satan? And then he tells three short stories that are all parallel. If a kingdom, if a house, if Satan himself is divided against itself, against himself, it cannot stand, it'll be torn apart from the inside. Jesus is illustrating by means of a story that if Satan is casting himself, if Satan is casting his own forces out of people, which leads to their spiritual wholeness, that Satan has already begun and is losing a civil war in his own kingdom. 
Jesus is effectively saying, if Satan is working against himself through me, then he's already done for and his end is near. So why, dear scribes, would Satan have any desire to do this? Your argument is so silly. The Pharisees' argument is based on their disdain, their hatred for Jesus, and so they make a bad argument. A logical fallacy is a a false or deceptive argument that appears strong but is easily proven wrong. Jesus' opponents and these scribes are guilty of at least one fallacy, the ad hominem fallacy. This is a, a tactic that attempts to discredit an opponent essentially just by calling them names or attacking their character. They're not taking any evidence into consideration and making their argument, but they're so desperate to discredit Jesus that they'll resort to calling him the literal worst of names. Calling God's work evil is desperately defiant. It is incomprehensible, and ultimately, it ignores reality, as verse 27 shows us. It ignores reality. The reality of the situation in and around Galilee is that Jesus is casting out demons. That's not in question. And people are being made whole as he heals them. Satan is losing his grasp on power, but not by his own hand. By use of another parable, the parable of the strong man, Jesus illustrates that Satan is, in fact, coming to an end. Not through demonic civil war, but he's coming to an end under the force of another rival kingdom. Verse 27 positions Satan like a strong man. Listen again to this short parable. It's two sentences. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus in this parable, it's kind of confusing. We want to think of like uh, burglars being bad guys, but in this parable, the burglar is the good guy. Verse 27 positions Satan like a strong man, a, a mighty man who has total control over his house and everything that is in it. There's no way, Jesus says, to take what Satan has claimed for himself unless Satan is first incapacitated by someone stronger. But then once he is, the stronger man who has bound him can plunder his house of everything he once thought was his own. Clearly, the strong man in the parable is Satan. And clearer still, the stronger man is Christ. Satan's house is his temporary sphere of influence in this world, and his possessions are all those people whose eyes he has blinded, whose ears he has stopped up, and whose hearts he has made hard against God. The stronger man, Jesus, without respect for the gates of hell, has kicked down the door to Satan's realm. He's tied him up, sat him on the floor, and is leading out of Satan's grasp a new exodus of souls to freedom. Just as God freed the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, so Jesus, the better Moses, is freeing by the power of God a host of captives to Satan. Now I want to caution us here in reading this text. It is not uncommon to hear uh, from some pastors, preachers, YouTubers, uh, this, uh, maybe more YouTubers than pastors and preachers, but that's a sermon of another color, uh, talking about binding Satan. And binding Satan in different places of your life, that this is a command that we have from Christ to do. I want to caution us this morning. We are not to read this parable like some do as instruction for how to go about binding Satan in your life. There's no command in this passage. Read it. There's no command in this passage to do such a thing. There's not even permission from Jesus to use this kind of language to describe anything that followers of Jesus do. Binding Satan is not something Christians do. 
The binding of Satan is a work of God and the divine Son, Jesus the Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not the stronger man in this scenario. Jesus is. The binding of Satan began in Christ's earthly ministry, and it's continued through his victory over sin and death and Satan at the cross and by his resurrection. Christ is the stronger man. He does the binding. The reality that the scribes are witnessing with every delivered soul from demon oppression by the hand of Jesus, what they are seeing with their eyes is that Satan's kingdom is falling. His house is being plundered, but not by himself. Instead, the banana republic of the prince of demons is falling because the righteous kingdom of God, led by Jesus the Christ, is disrespectfully dismantling the domain of darkness. For the scribes to see it any other way is to ignore the very reality of what they are witnessing. Seeing this, Christian, today, have confidence in Christ and His gospel Seeing that Jesus says that he is the stronger man that binds Satan and plunders his house, have confidence in Christ and his gospel today. Jesus, who has bound the strong man and plundered his home, is still burgling Satan today. Every soul saved by grace is another plundering of hell. Every new church that is started is a forward operating base of God's kingdom against the power of darkness. Every missionary that is sent to proclaim the gospel to parts unknown is one more blessed herald of the good news that Satan is on the run, that Christ is on the move, and he is building his church in such divine strength that the gates of hell will never, ever, ever prevail against it. The gospel we proclaim, that Jesus died for sinners and was raised again from the dead. The gospel we proclaim has power that gives us confidence to proclaim it because it declares the majesty and the strength and the glory of our wonderful hell-plundering King. The incomparable strength of Christ over Satan, over sin, over death ought to give us who know this Jesus all the assurance needed to storm the gates of hell with far more than a water pistol. We storm the gates of hell with Christ, the very fountain of life himself. Calling the work of God evil is, is a work of determined defiance. It's, it's logically incomprehensible. And it is ultimately a, an, an ignorance of reality. But the strength of Christ in defeating the powers of Satan and freeing demon-possessed people from uh, their demon possession ought to give us great confidence in him, the great stronger man who binds Satan and plunders his home. So Jesus teaches us. He reveals the, the, the faulty logic of the Pharisees. And then he speaks to them and, and also through God's word to us today, uh, a word of warning, a word of explanation about a particular sin, specifically the unforgivable sin. Look at verses 28 to 30 again. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. But whatever blasphemies they utter, uh, 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 excuse me, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The unforgivable sin is a hot topic <laughs> in the Bible and certainly in Christian circles. You may have heard a number of sermons on it already. I hope they have been helpful. What do we learn about the unforgivable sin from what Jesus says here? 
First of all, the unforgivable sin is rare. It's rare. Verse 28 begins with a phrase of, uh, of solemnity. Truly, I say to you. It's a phrase that should catch our ears as though Jesus is saying, if you don't hear anything else right now, listen to what I'm about to say. And he follows that with an assurance of the forgiveness of all sins and blasphemies, all transgressions, all immoralities, every act of rebellion against God, every terrible and selfish deed committed against another person can be forgiven. That's good news. This thought on its own that sins can be forgiven is irritating to some non-Christians who would like to maintain a list of what sins are really bad and deserving of God's wrath versus those that should be more excusable. But the witness of Scripture is that every sin, from a little lie to serial murder, every sin is deserving of death and separation from a holy God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has invaded Satan's kingdom of darkness to set spiritual captives free. The gospel, the good news of Scripture, tells us that Jesus has also overcome death, the, the, the death that we deserve for sin by himself becoming sin for us. To receive in our place the just punishment of sin at the cross. By Christ's death for sins, he put death to death. And by his resurrection from the grave, he gives new life, spiritual life, and eternal life to every person who sees that their sins and blasphemies against God make them needy of saving. John, the disciple of Jesus, writes in his first letter to the church, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, verses I hope, I hope are familiar to us now. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is forgiveness for all sins and all blasphemies if we recognize our sin before God, repent of it, and trust Jesus who died in our place to forgive us. But there is one sin, and just one, that cannot be forgiven. For a moment, set that aside and see the contrast in numbers and kinds of sins that Jesus is setting here. All sins and every blasphemy may be forgiven by the one who turns from their sin to depend on Jesus. See the vast difference between the number that may be forgiven, all, and the one that may not. And so let's not get hung up on the one that may not. Let us rejoice in the, fact, uh, in, in the all that may if we turn to Christ. The unforgivable sin is rare by comparison. There is one, just one. We learn, second, that the unforgivable sin is not just rare, but also that it is an intentional and a determined act, something you do on purpose. The unforgivable sin is a kind of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy, some think, is merely using God's name as a, as a curse word. Now, that is, part of using, uh, uh, that is part of using God's name in vain. That is a, a part of blasphemy, using God's name in a fruitless and insulting and empty way. But blasphemy is something more along the lines of speaking a word against someone with the intent to harm them, to injure them, or to slander their reputation. Verse 30 tells us that the scribes are dangerously close to committing this sin because they have accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So here's the definition of blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You may want to write it down. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is attributing to Satan the obvious and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is attributing to Satan 
the obvious and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Calling what the Holy Spirit does evil, satanic, demonic. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. This is not an accidental statement. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The scribes know what they see. They see Jesus casting demons out of demon-oppressed people. And they attribute the good, godly work that Jesus is doing to the devil. It's not an ignorant statement. The scribes know that they're trying to, de to destroy Jesus' reputation. Uh, they're not bringing logical arguments to the fore here to argue against who Jesus is. They know what they're trying to do. They're trying to destroy him. We saw the Pharisees uh, uh, earlier, um, uh, earlier in another passage of Mark's gospel conspiring with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. They're out to get him at any cost. They know exactly what they're doing. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is attributing to Satan the obvious and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So Christian, if you're concerned that you have accidentally committed the unforgivable sin, let me comfort you today. This is not a sin that can be unintentionally committed. You can't accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This is not a sin that those who are concerned that they have committed are even likely to actually commit. If you're concerned about calling the good work of the Holy Spirit evil, you are, you are not likely to accidentally fall into blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, okay? So Christian, if that has been a worry, a concern for you, I hope that you are comforted. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing to Satan the obvious, powerful work of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, is more than a statement. It's more than just saying, ah, that's evil. It is, in fact, a settling of the soul in opposition to all that God is and does. It is settling of the soul against all that Christ claims to be and is. It is a settling of the soul against every convicting and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And it is one that continues in an ongoing way without repentance until a person dies. So Christian, if you're regularly being made aware of sin in your life by the Holy Spirit, and you're confessing and repenting of it, brother, sister, you are not likely to commit the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Be comforted. Now, to be sure, Jesus himself does not even appear to accuse the scribes of committing this sin. Rather, it comes as a stern warning to them not to settle their hearts, not to settle their souls and, and callous hearts against the evidence of the kingdom of God and of its Christ. He's warning them, don't continue down this path. It doesn't lead to a good place. The unforgivable sin is rare. It's an intentional act, but it is third a sin that is against God Himself. The sin of slandering the Holy Spirit, calling His wonderful righteous work the fruit of evil, deserves this stern treatment by Jesus because it's a sin against God Himself. The Holy Spirit is not, as some would have you to think, a spiritual force in the world. Nor is the Holy Spirit an impersonal entity separate from God. In fact, the Holy Spirit is not an it at all, but a He. He is the third person of the Godhead. We worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the same God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. An ancient confession of faith, the Nicene Creed from the year about 325 A.D. says, confirms, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. 
a bishop of the church in the late 300s AD, Gregory of Nazianzus, bishop in Constantinople, said of these verses that we're reading this morning about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, this means that the Holy Spirit is of the same essential nature as the Father. The Spirit is the very one who created us and creates us anew through baptism and resurrection. The Spirit knows all things, teaches all things, moves where and when and as strongly as He wills. He leads, speaks, sends, and separates those who are vexed and tempted. He reveals, illumines, gives life, or better said, He is Himself light and life. He makes us His temple. He sanctifies. He makes us complete. The Holy Spirit both goes before baptism and follows after it. All that the Godhead actively performs, the Spirit performs. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is a sin against God Himself. To slander the Holy Spirit of God, to slander His work through Jesus Christ, is not to offend some impersonal force, but to resist and reject and despise God Himself. Finally, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit we find, has horrific consequences. It has horrific consequences. Jesus says clearly that whoever commits this sin never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And that statement ought to weigh probably even more heavily on our hearts than even we are naturally disposed to let it. The one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Understand this, and do not be mistaken. To not have forgiveness is to be apart from the loving and life-giving presence of God. It is to be apart from Him longer than forever. Even after death, there is not forgiveness for the one who dies with their soul settled on the wickedness of God and the evil of the gospel. Those who commit this sin receive as their inheritance in eternity what the Bible calls hell. Hell is described by Jesus Himself as a place of everlasting punishment, where in His words, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place of weeping and sorrow and gnashing of teeth and everlasting defiance of God's holiness. Now, whether or not hell is a place of literal fire, the reality of hell cannot be less severe or somehow better than how Jesus describes it. And hell is the home of everyone who dies in unrepentance of sin, of the sin of calling God's good work to save sinners through Jesus, calling that a work of evil, calling the gospel demonic. Hear me this morning. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit may be the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. But friends, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not the only sin that will send you to hell. Scripture tells us that hell is what is deserved not only for the blasphemer of the Holy Spirit, but it's also what is deserved for the liar, for the thief, for the murderer, for the adulterer, for the man or woman who lusts after another that is not their husband or their wife. Hell is the place reserved for the cheat, the swindler, the fraudster, for the embezzler, for the abusive parent. 
Hell is the place for the rebellious and disobedient child. It is the place for the alcoholic, the porn addict, the worshiper of false gods, the self-righteous pretender. Hell is the place for the moral unbeliever who strives to make sure that the ledger of their moral deeds is somehow weighted in their favor at the end of their life. Hell is the place reserved for people all like these. I'm in that list a few times, friend. Judging by my actions in the past, my sins in the past, I'm in that list. Are you? If you're shaking your head, no, you're wrong. You're in there somewhere. That list is not exhaustive. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit may be the unpardonable sin, but it is not the only sin that will send you to hell. Let us not sit and think that because we are not actively calling God's work in Christ evil, that we're not actively committing this one unforgivable sin, that we are somehow still not sinners. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin... All sins, friends, not just this one. The wages of sin is death and destruction and a life apart from God for longer than forever. We all need saving from the horrific consequences of our sin. It is often said that God loves sinners, but He hates sin, and that is true. But it is not sins as actions that are condemned to hell, but sinners, the ones who commit those actions. If God is loving, some say, how could He send people to an eternal hell? The harder, and that's a hard question to ask and to answer, but I think the harder question to ask and answer is, if God is really just, if He is really good at all, how can He allow any into heaven, knowing the sins of our hearts? For justice, for moral and moral purity and rightness. Justice is a a necessary consequence of God's holiness. If He is holy, He must be just. But justice requires that wrongdoers be punished for their wrongdoing. Murder cannot be put in prison. Murderers are put in prison. You cannot hold the act of embezzlement accountable to repay money stolen. No, the embezzler is the one who is punished. So also with sin against God, whether blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the coarse joke you told at your co-worker's expense, justice for sins is carried out against those who commit them. Hell awaits every sinner. I'll say that again. Hell awaits every sinner. And this should be a reality that burdens our hearts, that sorrows our souls, knowing that people made by God in His image to reflect His glory in the world, in despising Him and making ourselves kings and queens of our own lives, that what we deserve for that is an eternity apart from our loving Creator. Hell awaits every sinner unless, unless a way is made for sins to be forgiven. Now, already in this passage, Jesus has pointed us to the glorious reality that forgiveness is available for all sins and all blasphemies, that all kinds of sinners and all degrees of sin may be washed, may be cleansed, may be removed of all guilt and the punishment not only deferred, but a reward given in its place. How do we have hope of forgiveness? Not by our moral law keeping, no not by our family heritage. 
will not have hope of forgiveness by our church attendance. We have forgiveness from a just God, a holy God, who declares that He is Himself gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. Now, forgiveness by its nature requires that the one who has been sinned against absorb in himself or herself the offense of the sin and then not hold the sinner liable for more punishment, further punishment. But justice requires that sins be paid for. And in Jesus, the Son of God, our sins are paid for at the cross. A sinless life is given for sinners. The divine Son of God is given in the place of sinful mankind. Righteousness incarnate, given for trespass. An exchange of places where God the Son hung in the place of sinners as their sacrificial lamb. Forgiveness comes to the sinner who looks on Christ and depends on Him alone as the way for God's justice to be done against sin and for His forgiveness to be given to sinners. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, he says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The wonderful news of the gospel is that hope, forgiveness, mercy, grace are there where there should be none. That's the good news of the gospel, that all of the things that we so desperately need from God but don't deserve, are there for us in Jesus. The gospel is that God has punished your sin in Christ, and He offers full forgiveness in His holy court and restored fellowship with Him when we face the ugliness of our sin, confess it to God, and fall on Christ in faith to receive mercy and grace. The gospel leads every sinner saved by God's grace to sing with joy, As we often sing, and we'll sing in a moment, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. And the gospel should lead every sinner weighed down by their sin to bring all their shame, to bring all their guilt, to bring all their sinful rebellion to the very one that they have offended, knowing that it is His mercy in Jesus that does not merely weigh the moral ledger in our favor, but wipes it clear and writes in its place the righteousness of Christ Himself. The unforgivable sin is rare. It's it's intentional. It's against God Himself. It has horrifying consequences. But in Christ, there is life and hope and forgiveness of all sins of all blasphemies, of all trespasses, of of every coarse word or rude joke or hateful thought. Calling God's good work in Christ evil is a sin that has severe, horrifying, eternal consequences. The same consequences that await every sinner. And apart from Jesus, every other sin that we have committed or could imagine will be punished in hell in us who deserve it. But praise God, His Son, the stronger man, has bound Satan 
and his reign through sin in our hearts. Praise God. The stronger man is plundering the domain of darkness, setting captives free by the power of his mercy and his sinless blood given for sinners. If you are a saint saved by his grace, you can sing today as one made free to walk in holiness before God. Praise the Lord. His mercy is so, so, so much more. And if you're still a sinner, stuck in this pattern of rebellion against God, stuck in this rut of defiance against your Creator, and you're aware of it and looking for release and relief and pardon and forgiveness, I declare to you today that there is hope for salvation in the stronger man, Jesus to bind not only your sin, but also the power of Satan and even of death in your life and to plunder you out of Satan's grasp if you'll simply cling to him, run to him in faith, fall on his grace, follow him as Lord. All of the blessings of heaven and none of the curse of hell may be yours in Christ. Trust him today. You may be thinking, my sins are too great. Good news is, Bad news is, they are great. (laughs) But the good news is, His mercy is more. Infinitely, incredibly, wonderfully, eternally more. Find God's mercy in Christ. Do not die in your sin, but be saved today. Be given a new life in your soul today by the Holy Spirit that does good work in and through Jesus in the lives of those who believe in Him. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit today. Receive Him. Respond to his convicting word in your heart and place your faith in Christ. Calling God's good work in Christ evil is a sin with severe, horrifying, eternal consequences. But we praise God because we've known Christ, the stronger man, our sacrificial lamb, because he gives to us a mercy that far outweighs and ever will every sin that we have ever committed. Let's pray together in a moment. Uh, We'll stand together and we will sing that wonderful hymn, His Mercy is More. And if you're a saint, you sing that with all the joy of knowing that that is true in you because of Christ and your faith in Him. And if you're a sinner still struggling in your sin, as we sing these words, know that 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 those words may be a, a truth, a verity, a reality in your life today. If you'll trust Jesus, we invite you to do that. We invite you to trust Him today. I'll be up here at the front, just off to the side, if you need to talk about sins that are plaguing your heart, if you need to talk about finding grace and salvation in Jesus, let's, let's talk about that this morning. Maybe you want to wait until after service is over and come find me. That's fine too. But find yourself today in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.